Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I, I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI FM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in more of Walter's music, you can always reach out to me, JamesNave.com. That's my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, and you can reach me through my website. Would love to hear from you. What's your story? Where are you? What are you doing? What, what kind of field are you wandering around in? And if you would ever like to join me with a writing project that I'm doing, Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. I do that every Saturday morning at noon Eastern Time, 5 p.m. London Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And our door is always open and you're more than welcome to join us. And the website for that is imaginativestorm.com. Speaking of storming your imagination, today I have invited a professional storyteller to join me on this show. Her name is Regina Ress. She comes from New York City, worked much of her life, maybe most of it, in, in the city, acting in the theater and storytelling, connecting with people, hanging out in the East Village, hanging out in the West Village, all over the town. And now Regina lives outside of Santa Fe. I've gotten to know her because Every month, Regina and her friend Lucinda Delormier host an online gathering of storytellers, and it focuses on workshopping and presenting new stories. It's a very dynamic group. I've enjoyed my time with them in the last year or so. And during that time, it dawned on me that Regina would be a wonderful guest for the radio show. And so with that in mind, Regina Ress, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled. But I'm really fascinated, first of all, by the name Twice Five Miles. I'm sure, uh, and I haven't found the reason for that. I know there's a reason for that. What might you think it would mean, Twice Five Miles? What would that mean to you? Of course, you throw my question back as a question. Twice Five Miles, well, of course, the simple mathematical thing is it's 10. But what is 10 miles? So what is five miles? A thousand miles, a hundred miles. Walking twice five miles is a mystery. Twice five miles suggests a distance, and one is not quite sure what that distance is. And yet it seems further than just to walk around the block. Anybody who walks 10 miles, even if they're in the best of shape, will be aware that they've covered the ground because you do notice things along the way when you're walking, whatever distance you walk. The truth of it and the answer for you is that the name Twice Five Miles comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And the poem is titled Kubla Khan, A Fragment. Coleridge claims that he was having a dream and had a vision of an epic poem. And then when he woke up and was disturbed from his sort of opium kind of dream by his neighbor. He went off and had a, a visit at the cafe and came back and only could remember a little bit of it. I suspect that might be a myth. I don't know. In Kublai Khan, the poem opens, uh, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. And so, twice five miles, of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled around. 
And there were, were gardens bright with sinuous reels for blossomed many an incense bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. So Kublai Khan decreed the Pleasure Dome. And in order to give Kublai Khan his Pleasure Dome, we have twice five miles of fertile ground, which is 25 square miles. The longest I've walked in one walk was nine miles, a peace march in um, Massachusetts. From I was uh, on staff at a retreat center on a mountaintop there at one point in my life. And we went and walked to Amherst. And that was nine miles. <laughs> so that's where the idea for Twice Five Miles Radio came from. And then the tagline is fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. And so that's what I have here on this show. And as I said before we started, I never know where any of this is going to go. I just like to open up with, with the conversations. But I do know when we were talking earlier, you were starting to talk about Mabel Dodge Luhan. And I think the reason why that's so intriguing to me is because she was one of the early participants in what became the changing of the American culture. And it happened in here in Taos at the Mabel Dodge Lujan House. It also happened in Asheville at Black Mountain College. And it happened in, in New York and also at Gertrude Stein's place in Paris. Today, we have, at least in the Western canon, those four places of influence. And the people overlapped from Black Mountain College to Mabel Dodge Luhan House. They would go up to New York and, and then they would go to Paris and back and forth throughout that, throughout that time frame, starting at the early 1900s all the way through to maybe even to this day. So you were telling me about Mabel Dodge Luhan. And for those of you listening, if you don't know who she is, she was similar to Gertrude Stein. She was philanthropic, she was wealthy, and she held salons in New York. And back in the day, you said salon, and everybody did dress well, and or at least they were all bohemians with style. And they would gather around and talk late into the night about the ideas that would change the world. And, and you know what, some of them did. And Mabel Dodge came out here to, to Taos and brought some of the people from her entourage and brought some people from Black Mountain College. And there was this big overlap. But you were telling me about Mabel Dodge in the early days in, in New York City mm -hmm. and how she gathered everybody. So pick that story up for us, if you would. She came from wealth, but then she married wealth. And then she had her apartment on Lower Fifth Avenue in Greenwich Village, just a block or so from Washington Square Park. And this was in the 19-teens, and it was the, the height and the bubbling up of the great bohemian Greenwich Village that people think about Greenwich Village as being, because the people who were there then, there were writers were there, I think Willa Cather was there, all kinds of people were there, activists were there. There were cafes where the real radicals, in terms of activism, folks who'd come from Eastern Europe, with a lot of political ideas. And they would come over and go to these cafes and talk then to the upper crust ladies who then had a salon of their own talking about socialism. Things were just bubbling. A group of folks, the theater people, 
who were summering in Provincetown, Massachusetts and started doing shows. A, a man named Eugene O'Neill was there, a man named John Reed, who had already gone off and written about Pancho Villa. He was a journalist. He married Louise Bryant, and the two of them were all involved. They loved their little theater that they did in Provincetown in the backyard, basically. So they said, let's do it in the village. So they took an old uh, stable uh, originally and turned it into a theater and then moved up the street and did the same thing with the bottling plant. And this was on McDougal Street in New York City. So they started what was called the Provincetown Players, which then O'Neill renamed the Provincetown Playhouse. And O'Neill, I think 17 of O'Neill's plays debuted, opened in this theater. And they were all about writers. And what they said, and I love this concept, they said, and so we're talking 1916, Oh, Broadway is for the tourists. It's so commercial. We're going to change American theater because Broadway is this commercial thing for tourism, right? 1916. And they did. (laughs) And they did. They had these extraordinary plays. Just everybody came. A woman named Juna Barnes was there. Uh, Juna Barnes then went off and she was hanging out with Gertrude Stein. They all left the village when all the tourists then realized there were bohemians to look at in the village. So those folks went to Paris. Then they were all hanging out with Gertrude Stein. That same crowd. Juna Barnes was one of them. And then she came back to the village and was still living there, I believe, in the 1970s. She didn't have a penny. And she was on Patch and Place. And she was a novelist. She wrote the first, as they say, the big lesbian novel. Her life story was amazing. E.E. E. Cummings was living on the same block with Juna Barnes. And now we're talking the 70s. And he'd go, Juna, are you still alive? And she'd go, yeah. And she was yelling at my friend's daughter. So those folks back in the 19-teens were there. So there were political activists. Margaret Sanger was running around getting her teeth kicked in by the police for teaching women that they could control their own bodies. That, that's who was there, just this amazing collection of people. Edna St. Vincent Millay, the poet, came on in. She was acting at the Provincetown Playhouse, and then she wrote an anti-war play called Aria de Capo for the Provincetown Playhouse. It's a brilliant play, I've seen it, at the Provincetown Playhouse, which is now owned by NYU. They did an evening of three of the original one-act plays that those people wrote 100 years ago. And it was chilling to sit in the theater, much renovated, but it's the space, the walls are there, the ghosts are there. Whenever I walk in the theater, I bow to the ghosts. So Mabel Dodge was part of that crowd and they would go to her house her apartment and hold these salons, including with the chief of police periodically, just to mix things up. Apparently, Mabel Dodge liked to mix things up. So when she left New York, where did she go? She checked out Santa Fe, apparently, and said, nah, because there was a whole other group of people, some of whom were from Greenwich Village in Santa Fe, creating the whole visual art scene in Santa Fe. And so Mabel went on up to Taos, and the rest is history. (laughs) Why do you think that era, that time was so fertile for those people? What was it about that time that made it happen like that? Maybe it was in the water. It was definitely in the air. It's my era. I had a boyfriend once back in 1969. He said, you know, you're not a hippie. You're not a beatnik. I said, no. He said, you are an old style bohemian. And that's that group of people. So who were they? It was just before and then during World War One, And so you have the suffrage movement. I believe it was 1917 or 18. 
a vote in New York State that, to give women the vote turned the tide so that it became a national law. So, and all those people were involved with that as well. The suffrage movement was happening. Women were throwing off their corsets, right? And really, after the war, they did. Greenwich Village always was. Back in the 1840s and 50s, that's when Poe was there finishing The Raven. And Whitman, I think he was living in Brooklyn, but he came over because there were these little clubs where people could talk, intellectuals and artists could come and talk. It's got a big history. I really love Greenwich Village. It kind of evolved because then there was lots of cheap housing where they could come. Thomas Wolfe came later. I mean, everybody came to the village. It just had this ambiance. Part of that uh, is that it had been a village, the Lenny Lenape village, and then it was a Dutch village, and then it was a British village. The streets do this because they had been cow paths. Uh, part of the history, there was a big black community in there. The Dutch had apparently semi-freed a lot of their enslaved folk, who, by the way, built the wall. The Dutch built to keep the British and the Indians out. That's Wall Street. So they freed a bunch of those folks and put them where is now Greenwich Village and across the island because it was fertile ground, it was farmland. So in 1900, when all this started, there were a couple of black churches, there was a black community there. There were immigrants coming in there. The Irish had been there and the Italians came in there. It was just whoever you are, come on. There's housing and there's space to breathe. And the big city didn't happen there because um, that's the geology of it. Around the village, it's 200 feet deep. So you had rivers, you had hills. It was open space. Somehow, when groups of people come together, they attract each other. I think part of it is the physical space and the energy of the village. I think part of it is that's who kind of kept finding it. And then once they really found it, People came in, Max Eastman was there, and he was the head of the Men for Women's Suffrage, but he also was running this magazine, The Masses, which was basically political activists, many of them socialists, not communists, but the old school socialists, let's help people, people. That's who was there. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened there. That's when a hundred and some young women jumped to their deaths because they were in a sweatshop up nine floors. Doors were locked and the fire happened. They jumped to their desks. The Ladies Garment Workers Union came out of that moment, which I think was 1912 or 13. So there just was a lot of stuff going on. The East European immigrants were down on the Lower East Side. That's walkable. It's just all walkable, you see. And they just were talking to each other. And so the arts just flourished you had visual artists, you had a lot of writers in there. And these theater people are the ones that I'm involved with because I'm a theater person. And I get to produce shows at the Provincetown Playhouse because NYU asked me to do that. So I produce and get to write for and perform in that space where those people changed American theater. But Mabel Dodge was part of that scene she was not the creative artist, but boy, she knew how to get them together and get them talking. And, you know, I wonder if that ever ends. And I also wonder if the people who are gathering in those places back in that time were aware they had that kind of muscle. 
and I even now to this day, I look at Asheville, North Carolina, and there are a lot of creative scenes in Asheville. Yes. And I know there are a lot of creative scenes in here in Taos as well. And I've been in some of them myself over the years. And the thing I've always noticed and thought that nobody is aware that they're doing anything except showing up in that moment and participating in the bubbling, bubbling, bubbling of conversations. And many of them, myself included, never occurred to us that it was all that creative. You know, if you're doing what you do and you think, doesn't everybody live like this? No. You know, you look for people who would like to bubble with you. And so when you get some good bubblers going, then more bubblers show up. I think, you know, that's just one way to look at it. But you also have to have a place. I think location is really important. I'm very interested in location and why people showed up in Greenwich Village. It's low, it's low rise, it's old, it's very old. So I think places energetically attract. So New Mexico, as a geologic phenomenon is so powerful for a lot of reasons. Since I've been spending a lot of time here, I've been looking into that. A long and interesting history here, starting with the native people and then the incredible history. New Mexico predates the East with a lot of things. So there's a long history. There's powerful land and beautiful land. History that is layers and layers of people showing up here for some reason. And then this beautiful bloom that comes up of the, of the arts community, which then attracts more artists and more people who are interested in the arts, even if they're not artists. There are places in the earth that just have it. And other places that are lovely and wonderful and charming, and they don't have that, they have something else. Every place on the earth has something. I have a friend who lived here in Taos, for maybe a year or two. And she moved away to another area and not too far from here, but still a good six hour drive. She's very talented. She can write. She knows how to play in the arts. She did not come to Taos as a professional creative or professional artist. She came from another profession and wanted to come here to engage her art. And then she had an opportunity to go somewhere else and be in her profession and establish herself in more of a family situation with someone she met. And she recently left a message asking the question, well, I wonder if geography really matters because I'm here and I, I still have all the drive I had when I was in Taos, but can I do what I did in Taos? Can I do it here? And can I do it anywhere? And it's a, it's a really interesting question because if you're artistic, maybe you can write a great novel in a small apartment with six people. And Regina, you said you've done some thinking about this. What are your thoughts on that idea of location or not location and still having the location inside of you to make the work? Oh, well, that's a complicated question and a good one. You know, starting with the external, there are spots where I feel more alive and more connected to who I am. And when I'm connected to who I am, my creative juices start to function more. On the other hand, ultimately, it has to come from inside. You can be in solitary confinement and become a great creative. Look at uh, the story, you know, of Jimmy Baca. 
who was in solitary confinement for a long time and learned to read and write and started being a poet and then came out. He is a wonderful advocate for everyone has that inside and even if you're stuck in solitary. So I don't want to say that it doesn't happen, can't happen anywhere else, but I think there are places that spark it more than, let's say, some other places. However, if you're someplace as wildly energetically creative um, as Taos, let's say, Greenwich Village is a whole other thing now. It's Hollywood on the Hudson, and it's not what it was 100 years ago, but that I still have my base there. I mean, my toe, my toe is still there. But people who really want to get down to it sometimes have to leave those places with all those fascinating people that they can meet in the cafe and have long conversations with and go somewhere, sit down in a cabin or a cave and write the damn book. (laughs) So for getting juiced up, there are these places where there are all those folks. To produce the thing may take retreat from those places. And I imagine it's a dance that each person has to dance on their own to their own own tune and they have to find their way. And if something creative inside of you begs to be born, demands to be born, requires you to birth it, it might not matter where you are. You might birth it no matter where you are. Right. Solitary confinement. That's such a good example. We find ourselves in terrible situations. And they talk about who, who survived the concentration camps mm-hmm. and who didn't survive the concentration camps. And a, a lot had to do with what was going on inside you. you. might be angry enough to survive or loving enough to survive or had enough internals creativity to survive. And luck, of course, there was a certain amount of luck with all that. But uh, there we find ourselves in, in these terrible situations and some folks come out with the masterpiece. So I think the answer to my friend's question might be, yes, you can thrive in an artistic community like the West Village or like Taos has been and still continues to be, or for that matter, Asheville. Yes, you can do that. But no, you do not have that as the most necessary part of what requires of you to have thriving happen. It's inside of you. And the concentration camps, that's a great example, because that was a bleak, nasty, ugly, how many words would you like to use proposition? And yet much emerged from that. Black Mountain College rose out of some of that because the people came from, from Nazi Germany. They escaped Germany and arrived at Black Mountain College to, to teach. And they were geniuses and went up to New York after the war and made great contributions. So it can happen for sure. You know, it has to be in you. You may not know it's within you and it may take some amazing place to suddenly crack you open and you go, oh, I have this in me, but it has to be in you. And then the spark has to happen. And then then there's the discipline of doing it. I definitely agree. You got to do it in order to make it happen. So on that note, let's shift from the background of how this all started to the present moment and the storytelling world and, and how we do that. I first got to know you when we were gathering together on the monthly salon that you host, you and Lucinda. 
it's a storytelling gathering and yet it's a storytelling workshop it's a storytelling salon it's a place i've been able to work out some stuff with my oral tradition in a way that i haven't been able to do in other places it's a bit of a master class for beginners if you can yeah. imagine such a thing and so i'd love for you to spend some time talking about storytelling and i've had some storytellers on the show i've had laura sims and i've had um, minton sparks and and a few other wonderful storytellers uh, connie reagan blake so it's a real pleasure to be in that storytelling arena because that's where i started my spoken word career i started it when i went to jonesboro for the ninth annual storytelling festival at jonesboro tennessee and this was in 1981 82 and i've been doing some version of oral tradition ever since so storytelling what's what's that about you've had a big career in the theater how did it end up being a storytelling career I was pointed toward acting and theater, starting dance lessons when I was three. And then I saw The King and I when I was 12 and said, I want to be an actor. And I did. I went to New York and I acted off off Broadway and La Mama. I had grease paint and glitter. And then for years in my apartment, there was glitter all over the cracks. I got on Broadway, amazing experience to went touring and helped start a theater that became a state theater in Florida and did any number of strange and interesting roles, which were ways for me to explore who I am. I also was, because I'm very practical, I've always had one foot in the practical. My undergrad degree was English. I'm a trained teacher. It's part of me. I really love teaching. So I was acting, but I'm really wildly interested in lots of things. I ended up going off to Hawaii and starting a farm, and I had a baby. I grounded myself, is what I did. And that was 1980, because I was having a really interesting time in theater. But when I had this child, and then I was like, what are you going to do now? Because you can't go off touring with a baby. It took me a little while. I was looking around. I got very interested in indigenous cultures in various parts of the world. And so I was studying some of the wisdom from these older cultures. So that was very much a part of who I was for a while. Still trying to figure out, what do I do? I have to earn a living. <laughs> Not that you earn a living doing storytelling, but guess what? That's what I did. I found storytelling when my son was five years old and I was trying to find underpants for him. I could buy white underpants, which were boring, or underpants with pictures on it. In fact, that was true of all the little kids' underpants. So the girls' underpants had my cutesy pootsy pony or whatever the cutesy pootsy thing was in the day. And of course, princesses. On the underpin, on the boys, violent action figures. And I remember clearly thinking, there has to be other images in front of children. So I started volunteering in his kindergarten. I, I didn't know anything about storytelling, never heard of it. But I was doing things with them through the arts because I, I, I have a master's in, in theater as well. So I was doing all these kind of creative things with these kids to get other images besides all that violence that was being fed to the children, right? At the same time, I had discovered the goddess Inanna and was starting to do workshops with the women looking at the text put together by... Um, the Sumerologist Samuel Noah Kramer and uh, a woman named Diane Wolkstein, this goddess Inanna, this great thing. And we were doing experiential weekends looking at 
the metaphors and the images in the story as it relates to our own lives. That was happening a lot of places in those days. So I'm talking about the 80s. And a friend of mine said, well, if you're interested in Inanna, you should call Diane Wolkstein. She's your neighbor. This is the woman who put that text together with the Sumerologist. So I called her up and I said, I'm doing workshops with uh, Inanna. I'd love to talk to you. And she said, well, I'm telling Tristan and Isolde at the Cloisters Museum uh, Saturday. Why don't you come? I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't know the cloister. So but I went up there, which is this fabulous place overlooking the Hudson. And there was this woman telling the story of Tristan and Isolde. And she said, I'm a storyteller. And I said, huh? <laughs> and she said, the storytelling uh, center of New York is meeting all the Tungis giving us a workshop. Why don't you come? So I did. So here's this incredible African drummer and he's drumming and telling stories and giving us a workshop. And I was, my eyes went, ah! so I got involved with the storytellers. Uh, and I became Diane Wolfstein's assistant and learned about storytelling. Storytelling, it's not just entertainment if you're real into it. So there was this teaching piece. There was my interest in all of the kind of old cultural stuff because I came in with mythology. That's what I was interested in, mythology. And performing. I'd been performing all my life. So I kind of walked in and there was these three things, the teaching, the performing, and then my interest in the old cultures. Boom, and I walked straight into it. And I've been doing it ever since. And so I perform and I've done a lot of arts and education in schools, really interesting things, really interesting things. Then producing, because I was on the board of the New York Storytelling Center for years and years, I did all kinds of, we ran workshops and we put things together. So I, I take assignments. Uh, if I ever get around to writing a memoir, it'll probably be, I take assignments. That's how I got into it. And uh, it is an extraordinary art form. It's an extraordinary teaching tool. And I'm also ESL trained. And so I, I one of the classes I teach at NYU has been how to use storytelling to teach language but you can teach anything with uh, even math. I had some students who were math education students. So I sent a bulletin out on, on Facebook. Okay, math and story. Cause I know, I knew a little bit. I got all these incredible lesson plans. So we were all looking the whole class and got into it. Where's the math lesson in this story? And by the end of the class, you know, people would go in you know, some dance education major would say, hey, here's a math lesson in this story. It's an incredible teaching tool. It's an incredible tool for peacemaking. There is a, a saying, you can't hate somebody whose story you know. You may hate what they do. You may hate the way they be. If you understand their story, where they're coming from, there's a level of understanding that mitigates all of that. And maybe you can work with them. So there's a lot of, a lot of work done with getting Noah Baum and other people who work the Palestinians and the Israelis, let's talk. Here's my experience. What's your experience? Here's my experience. Wow. We were sitting in Jerusalem in the same war and the experiences were completely different. How amazing. It's quite the thing. You can get a master's degree in narrative medicine at Columbia. I helped put together a workshop called Tales from the Body. And this was 18, 20 years ago about people telling their personal stories with 
certain injuries or certain this's or certain that's. If you go to a doctor and they're merely a technician, they don't see you as a human being. They don't see your personal story. They don't see your family story. They don't see your deep cultural story. And it's harder to get healed. <laughs> Whereas if they see you as more than the disease, they might be able to work with you better. There are so many pieces to it. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. So I've been in the storytelling world now for more than 30 years, but with previous X number of years, deeply involved in things that led to my ability to walk straight into the storytelling world. And on that note, Regina, I'd like to pause for a moment and thank everyone for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Our guest today is Regina Ress, a New York-based storyteller now living in Santa Fe, Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in Walter's music. JamesNave.com, if you're interested in getting in touch with me. I do a weekly Saturday writing session called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And if you're interested in joining me for that, would love to have you. You can find out all about it at ImaginativeStorm.com. It's a Zoom gathering of folks who are interested in the writing process. So if you're one of those, we would love to have you. The door is always open, no matter whether you're just starting out or you're a seasoned writer. We all have a great bit of fun every Saturday morning. ImaginativeStorm.com Thank you, Davine Dial, for all the good work you do managing this wonderful little community radio station. WPVMFM.org If anyone out there listening would like to learn more about community radio. So, Regina, thanks for your patience. So before we took this little break, I was enjoying the way you were unpacking the idea of storytelling being much more than just storytelling. Can you explore just a little bit more for us the difference between the actor on stage and the craft of acting and the craft of storytelling, the overlaps and the differences? Another big question, Mr. Nave. <laughs> it's a huge continuum. There is not one way. So a big difference generally is fourth wall. Acting, you're on a stage and you are looking at your fellow actors. You are in a story, you're not relating a story and it's happening in front of the audience. Storytelling, is to the audience. And certainly old school storytelling has not got lights which blind you. You can't see, we keep the lights on. This is old school storytelling now. Keep the lights on, we're talking to people. We're looking at people. We can change parts of the story. I have changed an entire program looking at who's sitting in front of me. Because storytelling, as Laura Sims loves to say, is a dialogue between the listeners and the storytellers. And a theater piece is not. The dialogue is going on in front of. Is something happening outside the audience. Whereas with storytelling, you're making the pictures in your head. My favorite kind of storytelling, really, generally, is very simple storytelling as opposed to wildly performative 
storytelling. This is for me as an audience. And I tend to tell stories non-performatively. I might have some voices and I move a lot because I started modern dance lessons when I was three years old. I also lived in Hawaii and studied hula. So if I watch myself with a lot of stories, I'm moving within the story. I think that the most powerful for me are the storytellers who show up. That's the number one rule for everything. And that's true in acting too. You need to show up, but you need to show up for your character and the other characters and your fellow actors. This is a much more direct thing. I'm talking to you and I've seen people at Jonesboro, for example, in a huge tent full of people and every single person probably thought that story was being told for them. It's that direct and that's a really great storytelling. Whereas it's not true of acting and a play, you can rehearse that play, you can do it without an audience and it can be really phenomenal. But you can't do storytelling without an audience because the audience or the listeners, we like to say, they're part of it. They're really part of it. Acting, I want to become somebody else. Storytelling, I want to give a gift of an entire universe and take people on a journey. And it's my job to take them as all the characters, it, to describe the landscape, to get some plot in there. It's my job to take them on that journey that is journeying. So now we're tiptoeing in the older cultures kinds of things, journeying, you take them on a journey, bring them back safe and sound, deliver them back safe and sound. That's the job. And I love long stories and I don't understand these things. Oh, let's tell the whole story in four words. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I love those Let's go here, let's go deeper, let's go down this rabbit hole, come out of this rabbit hole, here we go. You know, and I think about um, long form things, one of the most wonderful things I ever saw, and this was a play, but it was Peter Brook's Mahabharata, nine hours in one day. I loved that because it took me on an incredible journey. And you can do that. You don't have to have Peter Brooks nine hours, but you can take people on these trips and they can be fun. They don't have to be terribly serious and they can be fun, but they mean something. I've done work in prisons with women with story and other arts because storytelling involves writing. It involves visual art, music, movement. You can, it's all in there. But I once was asked to do something with formerly incarcerated women. And uh, I took in a Grimm's Tale that's a really incredible metaphor for domestic violence because one of the things that I've been doing recently is helping to produce films on domestic violence. The princess falls to a crack in the mountain, is captured by a troll who says, do everything I tell you or I'll kill you. And she does. And then one day, and those are magical words. And then one day, right? Then one day, she decides to get out and she gets out. So after the workshop, two of the women came up and they were just bubbling all over. And uh, they said, you know, that was so incredible. Thank you. And one of them said to me, 
my mother used to read me those stories when I was little. I didn't understand that they actually were about something because children hear stories at the level they hear them. But fairy tales, folk tales are not kid stuff. They're trolls waiting to use us for their purposes. And at some point, and then one day, we need to say no more. <laughs> they got it so deeply. Theater can be life-changing as well, but it's not this direct communication. An actor wouldn't necessarily be able to make a quick transfer over to the storytelling stage in the same way that a seasoned storyteller might not be able to make the transfer over to the acting stage, even though when many people think of it, they don't really know the difference. That could be another discussion. I have a master's degree in theater, but most of it was academic. I was in Villanova. But the acting teacher had just come back from Europe. This was 1969, 70. She had been working with a man named Jerzy Gutowski, who is one of the great directors and teachers of a kind of freeform, fluid acting. It was not technique, my dear. The acting textbooks were Zen and the Art of Archery, Sid Arthur, Steppenwolf, and The Fall by Camus. And the class was about getting down to our essential nature so that we can find the essential nature of the character we're playing and play that. Acting is an art and a craft. You have to learn it. Storytelling is an art and a craft. It is different. If the storyteller gets lost in a character, they're not telling the story. They're being the character. It's just different. <laughs> well, Regina, that's a great note to close on. I would just like to say thank you so much and so much information that you've given us about the early days in the village and then about acting and your reflections on place and geography and, and finally closing with an excellent explanation of the difference between theater and storytelling. So thank you ever so much for all of that. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been wonderful. So I thank you. I thank the radio station. I thank that wonderful station uh, manager. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate people who keep things together. We need people who know how to put things together and hold them together. So thank you so much. This has been a real delight. And that, my friends, was my conversation with Master Storyteller Regina Ress. So with the time that we have left in the show, I'd like to continue on with our storytelling theme. You may recall Regina referencing the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, which goes on every year the first weekend of October. I believe they skipped 2020, and now I think in 2021 they're planning another festival, according to their current website. And Jonesboro, Tennessee, for those of you who don't know, is about an hour and a half at best north of Asheville going up I-26 toward Johnson City. And even to this day when you drive from Asheville to Jonesboro, you take a windy two-lane road that runs along the French Broad River and skirts across some beautiful farmland. And before you know it, you're in Jonesboro, Tennessee. I have an affinity for that part of the country because my family on my father's side all came from that area, Jonesboro, Johnson City, Chucky, Greenville, Tennessee. 
And even though I haven't driven that two-lane road along the French Broad River to Jonesboro in quite some time, it won't come as any surprise to you that even now as I'm talking about it, I feel an emotional tug in the direction of those old ancient mountains. Of course, I have an emotional tie to the area that my family came from and I grew up in, and I imagine you have also emotional ties to different kinds of geographic regions you've been in over the years. Perhaps you were born in a place and you've been there all your life, or maybe you're a traveler and you've gone all over the world and in your meanderings you found yourself drawn to the magic of, of place. And if that is the case, you have a sense of what I feel when I talk about the emotional tug I have for the French Broad River and the windy country road and the mountains that rise on both sides. Which brings me to a thought I've often had about place. And I'm talking about geographic locations now. It's likely you've traveled enough in your life to have seen some locations that you think are beautiful and others you find a little less appealing. And many of the more popular locations are written up in magazines. The 10 best places to visit or the bucket list locations you must see before you kick that bucket. And indeed there are a lot of places to see and Rightfully so, you want to go take a look, see the beauty of these different places. Even so, there are a lot of places you just pass through, places that are insignificant or at least seemingly insignificant, maybe even almost ghost-like in their town atmosphere because a lot of people have left them. Well, here's my thought. I have been through many of those towns, as maybe you have too, and it occurred to me that in every place in the world, no matter where you go, you will find somebody who thinks that place is the best place to live in the whole wide world, and they would never want to go anywhere else. They're perfectly happy there, and they enjoy every minute. Now, I'm stretching this a bit because there are some regions that are rather rough and tumble conflict regions, etc., etc. And yet, even in the harshest of places, I'll bet you'll find at least one or two or maybe even more people. They were born there. It's their native land. They, they know the earth of the place. And so they will tell you all about the beauty they see there when you may not quite see the beauty at first. So here we are back to storytelling. If you interview any of those people, the ones who love the land, I'll bet you you'll get at least one who will talk your ear off for an hour or two about why their place is the place they love the most. And they'll tell you the stories of their childhood. They'll tell you the stories of their of their growing up. They'll tell you about getting married, falling in love, maybe even leaving and going away to the big city to find the lights up there on Broadway or wherever it is. And then they felt the tug. They came back home and they landed in that place that doesn't look so beautiful to you, but to them it is, it is everything. And again, storytelling is as much about asking someone to tell you a story as it is you telling the story, asking the question. I remember my father, as I said, grew up in 
Chucky, Tennessee, and, and Jonesboro, Johnson City area. And my relationship with my father was a rather uh, unruly relationship, as so many people tend to have with their parents. And the reason my father had such an unruly time in his life was because he was a World War II veteran. And he went away to World War II and spent six years in the war. He, I know, was in the Battle of the Bulge. That's one of the harder winter war areas in Germany during World War II, toward the end of the war, I think. I know he was there because I've seen pictures he took of soldiers, German soldiers, one German soldier especially, and I was a child when I saw this story or this picture, the German soldier frozen against a tree. So my father came back from the war with all kinds of trauma, if you will, and, and he bottled it up like so many soldiers do. I mean, in some ways all wars have that in common. The soldiers return home and they have things bottled up they have to deal with for the rest of their lives. That's happening this very, very day. And it happened to my father, too. Now, the reason I bring this up is because when he was close to his last few months on Earth, I decided to do something I had never done before. I decided to go visit my father, and instead of having a regular conversation with him like, well, hello, Dad, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, son. Well, good, and, and so what's up with you? Well, I don't know. It's, it's pretty good, son. How about you? Well, it's good with me too, Dad. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Oh, I, I, I hope, you, hope you're doing okay in your life. And that was all he would say, and our relationship was a tad one-dimensional. I say a tad one-dimensional on one level, and yet I have to add that one of the things my father and I did for years was play music together. He was not a one-dimensional music player or fiddle player. He loved playing music. He was just a one-dimensional conversationalist. And he taught me how to play the guitar. He played the guitar, too, and the mandolin, and the accordion, and the piano, and the, and the fiddle. And he loved, he loved music. He didn't do it professionally. He did it because he, he loved it. Again, it's like the person who lives in that one place, and you ask them about the place, they'll tell you how much they, they love it. Well, my father did love music, and even though he didn't talk all that much, when he played, he was free. He lost all of that stress. And so then one day, toward the end of his life, I decided to go visit him with the intention of interviewing him about his childhood rather than just having yet another one-dimensional conversation with him. By then, he was no longer able to play the fiddle, although he loved to listen to the old-time Appalachian music. So I went over to his place and sat down, had my pen and my paper in my hand, and said, you know, I'd like to ask you some questions about your childhood, what it was like when you were growing up. Now, I bring this up from a storytelling point of view because I did something that taught me a great deal about how to be in the storytelling atmosphere. I was willing to ask questions, listen, and just stay with whatever he was willing to tell me. I learned that day, no matter how reserved somebody is, if you ask them a personal question about something they remember, especially their childhood time, they're likely to sit up straight like my father did and start talking. Well, my father did just that. He told me about how much he loved to skinny dip 
in the in the rivers around Chucky, Tennessee, when he was a boy, he told me about how bad he felt because he was held back a grade because he couldn't read. Turns out he was a bit dyslexic, so that was why he was held back, and it made him feel bad. And he got very excited about telling me how he moved over the mountain to Asheville, North Carolina with his family, and they established themselves on a little country road called Pine Lane, where I indeed grew up. He got so excited about telling me about coming over the mountain and moving to Asheville, but what got him really going was Inez, his first girlfriend in high school. He couldn't stop talking about how much fun he had with Inez. Now, this is a man I'd never talked to at this level before. He had always been father-son. Suddenly, I'm looking at this man who is turning into a boy again. It was a beautiful thing. And then I changed the subject, and I asked him about World War Two. What was it like to be in the war? And he had never really talked about the war. I imagine it was because nobody ever bothered to ask. And he started to tell a few stories about how hard it was and how cold it was during the Battle of the Bulge and how much he liked photography. He was a photographer too, funny enough, and how much he enjoyed enjoyed the idea of taking pictures. And he indeed did have a fairly decent archive of black and white World War II pictures. I have no idea where those pictures are now, but I do remember looking at the pictures and he did have some of the pictures from the concentration camps, and you may have seen some of those pictures over the years in books and whatnot. Not very pretty pictures, and yet they, they had lots of historical value, if you will. And then that's where I also saw the German soldier frozen against a tree. My father had a collection. It wasn't really a collection. It was a cigar box with photos in it left over from the war. Anyway, he he really started to tell about this. And then he, re, he brightened when he talked about how he came upon a, a farmhouse in Germany. It was deserted. The war had ruined the area. And he went into the farmhouse and he noticed a, a fiddle on the mantel, the living room mantel of the farmhouse. And he smiled and said, I took the fiddle off that, that mantel and I put it under my arm and then I wrapped it up in a blanket and I carried it around for the rest of the war and I played it a little bit and I brought it back home and I've been playing it ever since. Of course, that was the fiddle he played when I played the guitar with him. So it was a really remarkable story my father told me, which has now turned into a story that I'm telling you. And it's a way of talking about storytelling so that we can all understand that these stories that we hear every day are the kind of stories that other people want to hear. Now, you can turn those stories into poetry or write a memoir, write a novel, or just sit down and have coffee at the local cafe and, and tell your best friend one more yarn from a memory that you maybe haven't told before. So that's why storytelling is so intriguing to me. And the first time I went to Jonesboro, by the way, was 1981, and I went to the ninth annual storytelling festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and I did hear some great storytellers, and I have gone on to be in the world of the oral tradition.
which includes poetry and memoir and novels and storytelling and all of the rest. It's really a language thing which is the umbrella concept for storytelling and all of the rest. And of course, how many languages are spoken around the world and how many people tell stories in all of these languages. So think of the beautiful sounds that come out of everyone's oral tradition and how those sounds get turned into stories. And in some ways, it's the coding that keeps us moving through our lives, telling the kind of stories that have meaning telling the kind of stories that make our lives better, passing on something that has some value to your children or your grandchildren, or maybe even a stranger on the sidewalk. And on that note, it's time to close our show. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to. And remembering, I'm your host, James Nave. Always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. WPVMFM.org. That's the website if you'd like to learn more about community radio. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you would like to join me on any Saturday morning for the Imaginative Storm writing prompt of the week, I would love to see you there. We have an open door policy. Anyone can join us. You can be a beginning writer or an advanced writer, and you'll have tons of fun and generate some material in the process. Imaginativestorm.com if you're interested in finding out more about that. And so for now, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate your time and your listening energy, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.